Hello, dear friends. We're going to sneak in a quick episode of the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A. This is comprised of the part two questions that came in that I did not get to in a timely manner. Took a look through them, put together by our friend Tim Falkowitz, who's one of the first to submit questions in this one, by the way. Realized that there's some really good stuff. So I want to get to it. Going to get to new questions here coming up uh, in a day or two, but just wanted to cover some of these off. You took the time, and I figured, you know what? I got to get it in here. We got a Super Bowl coming up in a few hours, but truly sitting here, just happy, content, and with nothing to do. Got one of our cats, Rosie, sleeping to my right, Rocky sleeping behind me, and my wife, thankfully, getting some well deserved rest. So, Let's get going with your questions here, all brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Chris Albrecht, you open us up with a haiku and a pun together. Drivers TBA, it's what Groschon at Dale Coyne. For how much longer? Wow. Opening a little aggro there, Chris, but hey, why not? Uh, Tim Falkowitz, he says... Now that Romain will be an IndyCar driver, nickname proposals are open. So far, the Prude, the uh, sub-listener group of crazies who, I don't know, parse this show and assemble all the areas in which I'm garbage, uh, they, they've proposed Levi and Big John. Uh, more proposals to come at a later date. Um, I think this is all the gross and Jean, uh, big jeans, big John or Levi, something in there. Uh, seriously though, moving from the big Haas F1 team to IndyCar and the coin team is going to be a big adjustment with the deal coming together. So late, how far behind are they? And how do you think you'll fit in at the coin team? Great question, Tim. He's smart. He's going to figure things out quickly. He's not over the hill in terms of age, he turns, what, 35 here shortly. Been doing high-end open wheel for a long time. So I'm confident Romain will be skilled, capable, all those things. Where I think we're going to see clunkiness come in, strictly due to the point that you raised, Tim, that being of time, not having three, four, five months during an off-season to be at the shop do tons of pit stop practice and simulator stuff and just really get stuck in and immersed in everything that they do. I just think of things like, hey, they're going to be testing at Barber with him for the first time in a week and a half or two weeks, whatever it is. He will obviously want to spend the majority of that time figuring out the car, what it does, how it does things differently than a lighter and more powerful Formula One car. Figure out so many things, the new tires, the this, the that, all kinds of things. Then also learn to work with race engineer, chief mechanic, team manager, how to get things done, how hard you can push in this area or that. But we haven't even spoken about the main things, Tim. This is the area that I'm like, whoa, boy, Pit stops, right? Live pit stops, launching from the pits, caution periods, saving fuel, which I don't know if he's ever had to do, which is a huge part of being an IndyCar driver. Uh, Run down the list, uh, just yellow laps, right? How to conduct oneself 
oneself during a yellow lap while fuel saving, while keeping the tires warm? How long does it take for Firestone's primary tires and alternates to come up to temperature and be effective? It's all these little things. He's not going to have the alternate tires available in private testing. So it's just stuff like this where you go, okay, (laughs) this is where the late signing, which, I mean, just being honest, it's been a pretty big part of Dale's team ownership thing for decades. Sometimes, rare occasion, he gets everything done early. Sometimes, more often than not, he does not. One of the areas that's not going to help is a guy like Romad, despite all of his experience. There's so many little things to figure out to get the overall game right. And so I think the opening couple of rounds are going to be learning on the job more so than he would want. Do I expect him to be fast at places? Absolutely. But don't be surprised if some of the more procedural aspects of being an IndyCar driver, hold them back a little bit. The quick sidebar to this, and I think some of you uh, who've been listening for a while heard me mention after Jimmy Johnson went to Laguna Seca, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, in early November, happened to pop down, and they had him doing all manner of procedural things, whether it's pit lane speed limiter, pit stops, simulated yellow laps, fuel saving, so on and so forth. They said, you know, we're not just going to have you go out and turn into a lap time machine, and it's all about you and the track and the car. We've got to get this stuff in early and get you accustomed to it so that every other time we go testing, we can hit these key points, have you do them, so that you're refining them each time out. It's a bit of the opposite for Romain, who's not going to have more than probably one or two, I'm guessing, opportunities to get out and test. And yeah, we'll see how that comes along. But talk about a big, big learning curve of all the extra bits of driving. That could certainly be a little bit of a limiting factor for him. Uh, Daniel Summers Gill says, how many more drivers are we expecting to be announced for the Dale coin racing with Rick Ware racing entries? And will the second car be Indy 500 only or other races too? So let's see. We have the number 18 Dale coin racing with Vassar and Sullivan entry. That is Ed Jones full season. Welcome back, Ed. We have Romain Groschon in the DCR with RWR number 51 Honda. That will be Roma in the road and street courses only. The number 52 entry was listed. Number 52 Honda was listed as a part-time occasional thing. Here's what I think I understand. 52, I have heard, will be available uh, not so much. Let me see. We always expect Dale to run at least three cars in at the Indy 500. Um, whether the number 52 or whatever it is, I don't know, but I expect the 51 to be on track with the driver. And I would expect a third car, whatever the number might be to be on track. Three cars, Dale coined Indy 500. There you go. Ed Jones, Cody Ware, at least an entry, right? Got to qualify. And I'm not sure who else. 
Uh, you can run down the list of possibilities. Could it be a James Davison? Could it be, could it be, could it be? Run down the list of possibilities. As I understand it, Daniel, Cody Ware is meant to be in the 51 car doing the ovals. So filling the full season there. I've also heard, and there could be other races he does as well. I've heard the number 52 will have Cody in it at Detroit. So the Detroit doubleheader. So that would be his first road and or street course that I'm aware of with Dale Coyne Racing. That would be them expanding to three cars for something outside the Indy 500. Could that 52 be available at other rounds for Cody or someone else to make them a three-car team? Don't know, but the possibility is there. So I'm only aware right now of one other driver being announced. So three total. One in the 18, two in the 51, one of them branching out into the 52. So (laughs) hopefully that isn't too confusing. My brain might be a little bit confused, but you're not unfamiliar with that, dear listeners. Howard Bennett cracks open a great theme here about our man, Robin Miller. Says, how do we officially address new Hall of Fame inductee Robin Miller? Your Highness, Sir or Lord, Prince Robin of Terre Haute. Uh, Chevalier Miller of Tenderloin or just the legend that he truly is. Congratulations to him. Thoroughly deserved. So Howard, I forwarded your question to Robin and he sent back an email that had a lot of words that since this is a Sunday, oh, they would not be welcome in church. (laughs) Uh, but he did love your email. Uh, so he said, or your loved your question so he said thank you uh derek asks when will robin miller join twitter i mean it's almost like twitter needs to have that in their frequently asked questions list just sitting there the answer is never ever 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 because if you think paul tracy says things that are deemed potentially fireable offenses Oh, Robin Miller would be fired from everything on the first day he joined. And I don't mean for the uh, dickish, racist, whatever type stuff that Paul Tracy has written. I just mean for saying things to people that would be so insane. There's no option anyone would be left with other than to let him go. Somebody would say something critical to him or mean to him and he would just unleash a torrent of non-church-related words and accusations about the person. Um, yeah, oh, I tell you. So we are. these are things that we enjoy privately, Derek. And I can just tell you, probably nothing new, and I think I've mentioned it on the show before, one of the great joys in life is, whether it's in the media center or pit lane or whatever, being, you know, uh, Robin and I have been colleagues now for about 15 years, I think. And the unvarnished, unapologetic version of Robin that we get in the real world that he cannot share on social media. Oh, it's it's a rather amazing and remarkable thing. So, yes, there are countless people who love being in Robin's orbit who know that, yes, if he were to ever have access to Twitter, oh, yes, 
uh, he, well, every employer would have to distance themselves because, uh, yes, when folks anger him, he says words to them that uh, would lead to immediate cancellation by Earth. And that's not because he's a bad person or whatever else. It's because he's 71 years old, has lived his life however he wants, and conforming to societal expectations, that's not really Robin. So imagine being on a social media platform where, uh, yeah, he would have to. Um, that's just why, yes, no Robin on Twitter ever, 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 ever. He is on Facebook. He uses it very lightly to just post things about racing that he likes in terms of real fan interaction and engagement, which is kind of more of a quick Twitter kind of thing. Oh no. Uh, our man, Mr. Miller (laughs) for the sake of self-preservation does not engage Let's see, where else should we go here? As Rocky has woken up and climbed on top of the scanner and is looking out the window. Uh, let's go to Lawrence Cunningham. It says, congratulations to Robin on his Hall of Fame induction. Having grown up in Indianapolis and read Robin in the star all those years, might not always agree with him, but cannot deny his passion, knowledge, and love for auto racing. How many schedules will we go through this year to get the season on, by the way, he asks. Um, let's go with the first part here. So spent, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes on the phone with Robin a couple days ago, and we haven't had a chance to catch up on as often as we normally do, It's just with him being very busy with his own medical challenges, the medical challenges some of you know that we've been dealing with for a couple of years now. We're both frequently at hospitals or whatever, uh, tending to our own things, so good to catch up with robin wanted to mention that because having voted for him as a member of the voting i don't know what you call it but the motorsports hall of fame of america um as a voting member of that hall uh voted for him the moment his name came up uh, i think two years ago and then voted again last year and so here he is yeah it's pretty awesome uh, being in there, not that my vote had anything to do with it. There are a lot of pretty significant players in motor racing that pushed for it. Uh, but just point being, something that I saw as an option for him a couple of years ago immediately said, yes, he deserves that, no question. So happy to see him receive it. But you never know, Lawrence, how those things are going to sit with somebody, right? Hey, you've been named this or nominated for that those things usually come with like, all right, cool. You know, that that's nice, but you never know if it's really going to set into that person down to their, their roots. And it really did feel like in speaking with Robin, that this did that this honor from the motorsports hall of fame of America, it really did mean something, a recognition, his name, as he mentioned, being next to Paul Newman's, on that ballot i mean he <laughs> right uh i can only imagine what that felt like because at least from what we do on this end lawrence i realize that some of us have a little bit of a profile and some of us do 
TV like Robin does or whatever, you know, I realize that since there aren't many of us left doing this by chance, folks who follow motor racing or IndyCar and sports cars in particular, which are kind of sub forms of the sport in terms of popularity, you know, there aren't many of us doing it. So therefore it's not a surprise that, uh, awesome folks like yourselves uh, and others tend to know the reporters a little bit. Um, we don't think of ourselves as hall of fame people, right? You know, I mean, just saying, writing stories, doing videos, doing, taking photos and such. There are greats who have done this and continue to do it. But, you know, when you say, hey, AJ Foyt is in a Hall of Fame about motor racing and Mario Andretti and Roger Penske, I can just say, I think for most of us, and if there are any who think they belong in the Hall of Fame from the media side, they seriously need to get their head checked. Um, you know, we're, we're in the kind of worker bee service side of the sport, not the spotlight uh, side of the sport. You know, uh, a great story written by whomever, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to create, you know, legions of fans and grow the sport. And I'm not downplaying anyone. I'm just saying. Just appreciate the fact that for idiots like us in general, uh, you know, we are in service to the sport that we love, not really that close to the center of the sport, like the the Foyts and the this is you know the people who drive and and make the memories and make people fall in love with this stuff. So I think that's just a big part of why Robin is so you know overawed by this and i love that for him so i have no doubt that robin belongs in the hall of fame i mean among the uh however many people on the media side that have existed before us that are here now or will come after us i don't think anyone would begrudge robin being in the hall of fame because that guy's been contributing for five zero 51 years now 51 years just insane so i love that this has ended up meaning so much to him because these things tend not to uh as for the schedule i don't know lawrence i wish i had some real insights uh, what was it? I think on Friday it was 75 days till uh, the first race at Barber, I think is what I was told, something like that. So, uh, yeah, it looks like that's going to happen. I can't tell you if there are going to be more adjustments. I can tell you that having poked around a little bit and said, hey, this big 500-mile race that tends to happen in May that got moved last year, any thoughts on whether that might happen again? I've yet to hear anyone say, yeah, there's a decent chance it's going to get moved. Could that change? Again, I don't know. But I wonder if this schedule is going to hold. Totally non, you know, I'm just a guy reading information in credible newspapers and in some of what I have read very recently over the last week or so, it appears that some of the outbreaks have 
died down in some key areas where IndyCar plays. Not all, but again, is there a trend that we hope develops and new cases come down, vaccinations go up? I mean, these are the things we hope for. I can't tell you, though, Lawrence, if we are done printing new schedules, but I can tell you that I have fresh ink in my printer just in case we do. Uh, Let's see. Where do we go here? Uh, Bobberty G from Reddit says a first time question questioner. And I can't even pronounce it. Bobberty G with road America gateway and Laguna Seca's contract all up this year. Or so I can find, is there any word on, uh, if any of these tracks will be extended on the IndyCar schedule past 21, uh, road America, no doubt. I don't know the contract lengths, but there's no way on the planet earth unless Road America, for some reason, decides it wants to abandon its most popular race. That's, I don't foresee ever changing. Gateway, I'd say same thing. Uh, The most successful oval event that IndyCar goes to outside the Indy 500. It is a match made in heaven. And Laguna is a three-year contract that I seem seem to recall is a three-year contract. Obviously, there was not a race in the second year, so I am not aware of that, say, expiring or or being taken away, Uh, meaning, all right, you didn't have a race, but we're just going to count that as a calendar year, so this is the final year. So I think, I think there's still another year left on the Laguna contract. So would also say that of the three you have mentioned, the Laguna one is the only one that I think some of us just have that question mark over, not because we don't want it to succeed and so on and so forth, but obviously they don't run these races to not to lack in income and lack in profit. What will we see here at the end of the year with Laguna now as the penultimate race, assuming COVID is no longer restricting things by then. If we can have a serious turnout, I would say that the odds of this continuing at Laguna to have a second contract, multi-year put in place, I would have to believe, Bobberty G, that that would indeed happen. It's just a bit of a bit of a weird thing where there are a lot of factors that aren't necessarily all about the track in this case. Road America last year had a partial audience, pretty decent audience. Gateway as well, I believe. Laguna, again, did not happen. But if we can be in a place where enough fans can be at the track and enough people want to go, that's the other question here, just a little bit of a societal experiment. Just let's say that by July or August, COVID's numbers are significantly down and or vaccinations are significantly up. The average person and race fan is feeling way more comfortable in going to a racetrack than those like myself who've been pretty much actively avoiding the topic. Would they want to? There's still that thing of like, hey, we've kind of been in lockdown for a while. Do we want to venture out right away when folks say that we can? 
or do we just watch from home? So I would hope that racing fans would flood WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca for an IndyCar race, for an IMSA race, for all kinds of races later in the year. Do I have any kind of feeling as to whether that will happen? Again, we just don't know. But uh, the the flip side to this, Boberty G, is a concern that, hey, what if either COVID does not allow uh, state regulations, state, I shouldn't say regulations, state mandates and such say, hey, COVID's still here and you either can't have fans or you have to have a small number. What does Laguna Seca do since the circuit is uh owned by the county it's a profit generator for them they strictly look at it not as an entertainment facility but as a cash generator if holding that event means they have to pay indycar a significant sanction fee and there's very little chance of recouping that money in facing the possibility of going into the red yeah, it does stand out as a place where not enough fans could signal pretty serious concerns as to whether it's going to remain on the calendar uh, this year and beyond. Uh, let's see, grumpy guy in a a guy in a grumpy bear suit. I always get this word salad mixed up a little bit here. It says, what's going on with the two Andretti affiliates since Hinch was confirmed in the number 29 does that mean Brian Herta Autosports number 98 is vacant and is the number 88 that Colton Herta drove on the entry list at all? You'll see that on the number 26 Colton Herta entry, you do see the Harding and Steinbrenner branding, I believe. So there's that. Unaware of the 88 remaining as a number. Uh, as for the 98, yes, the vehicle is vacant uh, for every round other than the Indy 500 right now. I do know that having spoken with the team, they have said that, look, that car will always be available to Marco. He could, after taking a fairly significant break from being a full-time IndyCar driver this year, if he wants to, if he's energized, there's a firm understanding within the building that he could be back full-time next year in that car. Will that happen? Who knows? Not saying it's a high probability or low, just saying that it's a known thing that, look, he hasn't retired. He hasn't said, I'm going to do the Indy 500, and that's my farewell. Could he decide to do that? Of course. Just, again, sharing that internally, the 98 is not viewed as, oh, it's only got one more run. It's viewed as, who knows? We need to. It needs to be ready at all times for Marco. I also am aware that if a driver wanted to do some races in it and had the funding to bring and the team felt that it would be a valuable decision to accept whether the driver's got great potential and they want to feel uh, that driver out or the money being brought in seriously boost the overall program it's there there could absolutely be someone else driving that 98 entry so just tuck that one away one other little note which again i don't know if there's going to be any movement on it but there is a young canadian canadian italian italian canadian 
however you want to phrase it. I always get it a little bit mixed up. Young kid. Love this kid. Doing Indie Lights with Andretti this year by the name of Devlin DeFrancesco. Uh, yeah. Kid finished, what, runner-up, I think, in the Indie Pro 2000 championship last year. Led it for, what, about half the season. Um, won. Did a lot of racing in Europe. He's still, a you know, truly young. Um, raced in Europe. Just did the Rolex 24 last weekend. Um, kid is a lot of potential. And in the Andretti kind of farm system, I expect him to grow at a rapid rate in Indy Lights. Mentioning Devlin because there is a plan behind Devlin for him to be in IndyCar as soon as he is ready. There is enough funding behind him uh, to make that happen today if they wanted. So that's all thumbs up, green light, you name it question here is would devlin if he's having a really solid strong year in indy lights showing himself showing the team that yep indycar 2022 is that's me i'm all all ready uh for that would the team consider saying cool well guess who's doing laguna sake and long beach to close the year in the 98 car or whatever number it might be um could that be something for them to consider? Yes. Um, I'm not saying they will do that, but I do know that it's something that they've earmarked uh, for sure as a possibility. Uh, Devlin really is unique in the fact that he knows what he wants to do, has the backing to do it, and is with a team that is trying to line everything up to make that happen. It's not often you get that on the road to Indy in the last couple of years, you get the, hey, so-and-so won the championship and they've got an advancement prize and what kind of money could they put together to do a part-time or whatever it is IndyCar season. This is something where uh, if you just woke up a year from now, you could very well be seeing Devlin in the IndyCar series knowing that this has really been set in stone all the way along. If he needs a second year in lights, he'll do two years. So, it's not like they're just going to rush him into it no matter what after a single year, but that's something to keep in mind for sure that in terms of a fifth Andretti Autosport entry, whether Marco decides he wants to come back and be in that 98 car next year or not, uh, whether that means a totally separate entry is put together for Devlin, can't tell you if, how, when, what this might happen, but uh, I am pretty stoked to know that it looks like Devlin's uh, on the path to IndyCar here. Uh, ASAP. Dan Rice, as we uh, start to wind down a little bit, this might be the shortest Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode ever. Uh, Dan, you say, MP, how much of a confidence boost do you think Rossi will take from being part of the winning Wayne Taylor racing team at Daytona? He was quite self-deprecating about his sports car performances last year on his podcast and he had a down year in IndyCar too. Hopefully this can start a turnaround for him. He's a, a burning from the inside type who is fueled by negativity as he reconfirmed with us, uh, last week, was it week before, uh, as our guest and Hey, every driver is, is fueled in a different way, right? I wish I could say all of them were positive or whatever, 
Nope. Some of them let the, the things that didn't work out really uh, light a freaking nuclear explosion inside of them. That's who Rossi happens to be. I think my guess, purely a guess, um, looking at his performance at Daytona, but also a couple of sports car events last year, uh, Petit Le Mans jumps out. This guy has just proven himself to be elite in a prototype as well. Uh, it's not as if he's ever lacked the talent to do that. That's never been the question, Dan. It's just sometimes it takes a little while to connect with something different and get it and master it and have it become something you can easily wield. And so I think that'll rest nicely with him. But overstating the obvious here, hey, I'm among the best in the world in DPI. It doesn't really translate to having to go beat Joseph Newgarden in a Penske Delar DW12. So confidence can't hurt at all. But you'd be surprised at how much drivers compartmentalize things and say, hey, that was really cool. That was an amazing way to start the year. I won the Rolex 24 overall at a sports car event that is nothing like IndyCar and has no real direct link to anything about how my fate will turn out once we get to the first race of the year or the second race of the year and so on. So good, but I would say... I don't think it's actually going to move the needle inside him at all. Jordan Darwin says, MP, all the best to your wife. Thanks, man. Um, any goodwill to you and the cats are on hold until you answer my question from last week. There we go. As I mentioned, not enough. If you send in your questions and I don't get to them and you really want me to answer it, not just like, well, I sent it in and you didn't get it, but like get to it. But like, hey, I really want you to answer this one. Um Send it back in, as Jordan has done. He was nice of him to include something positive about my wife, but I always recommend just say something really mean uh, to me. Insult me heavily, and that usually gets my attention because I just find that stuff hilarious and love it. So, And that usually gets me to get to your question the second time around. Maybe a third. Who knows? This is how much more value does someone like Frozenquist, our man Felix Rosenquist, have uh, to Arrow, McLaren SP, coming from a team with one of the best damper programs in the paddock versus him coming in from a team behind the curve. Well, I can tell you this. He will certainly know the feel of what he had at Ganassi. He would not know the damper builds at Ganassi. That's something that, and maybe the all but the rarest scenarios, Jordan, teams do not invite their drivers into that level of setup and engineering information. Some of the more basic things like, hey, we're going to add a bit more camber up front. Okay, how much are we going? What? Give me a some sort of number, right? Are we adding this amount? Are we taking away that? Whatever it is, tends not to be we're going from 2.3 to 2.4. Uh, tends to be we've gone up a little bit, gone down a little bit, and maybe there's some sort of number attached on how much up or down if it is 
needed to help the driver compute to know what to expect. Uh, there's some drivers who want to know all the minutia about those things. There are others who just want to know the general uh, change that happened without needing to know the exact specifics. The reason that drivers want to know these things, the reason that engineers want to share some of these things, but not all these things, is if you are at a place that is fast and scary, you definitely don't want your driver to go out without any idea of the change that you just made. So the whole reason for that information download or upload or whatever it is, Jordan, is so that they can get their mind ready and anticipating what should happen based on that change. Hey, you said the the car is way too positive on turn-in, and we're talking high-speed, turn one Indy 500. It's always the, or Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It's always the easy one to go with. Hey, man, the nose is planted and to the point to where it feels like it's standing on the nose and the back of the car is barely touching the ground and I'm having to catch a big slide. Granted, I'm giving you an extreme scenario, but okay, in that situation, come in. We're going to make a change. We're going to take, say, some front wing out. So we're reducing downforce in the front of the car. The the seesaw is kind of tilting back a little bit, putting some more weight on the rear of the car because we've taken downforce off the front. So removed some up front, should hopefully add some stability to the back of the car. Now maybe it hopefully will feel less like it's going to spin and go flying into the wall. Again, just super generalisms. These are the things you're going to want to arm your driver with. Each driver is a little bit different, though. Again, just it's a personality thing. Uh, some want to know everything. And so you tell them, look, we took out two-tenths of this, this X amount of a degree of that, blah, blah, blah. There are others who say, tell me, give me the, hey, we took some front wing out. We took two turns. Okay, cool. I don't maybe know exactly what two turns is uh, if we're talking angle, but I understand what two turns means. Okay, I'm going to adjust my driving style on my outlap here to, or, you know, my first flying lap and my second to accommodate what I think is going to be the difference in chassis handling. But I don't really want to be out there with the movie Brilliant Mind going on and equations and this and that floating in front of my eyes because I have been overwhelmed with info. So I'm just sharing all this, Jordan, to give you to paint a bigger picture of unless I'm drastically wrong. I cannot imagine any point in time where Felix would have been invited into whether it's the transporter where they're uh, building, changing, coming up with new damper uh, builds or at the shop and to look at the exact build list of everything that was going in and what's different from one to the other. So it means that I would not expect Felix to show up at Errol McLaren SP with any kind of insider knowledge. Only thing he could probably give them is feel and reaction. And if and what the car did that they liked, probably stops right about there. Michael Hart, staying on the damper topic, he says, on average, how many seconds per lap on a road course, a street course, are gained by better damper packages 
from off-the-shelf solutions to the bespoke units that Penske and Andretti develop, how much performance is actually gained? I would say it all depends on the length of the course, Michael. Um, you know, you're you're not seeing grand differences in IndyCar if we're talking since you're talking just speed per lap. We're going to see a team that is really nailed or a entry that is really nailed damping on that day. Keep in mind that there's tons of other setup aspects that you got to get right as well. You could completely blow other aspects and you might have a significant gain and advantage with your damper package at Long Beach in qualifying. But let's say you totally screw the ride heights or tire pressures or aero. Again, there are a lot of things you can get wrong. Well, guess what? Uh, man, the car is going to feel like poop because the other aspects that interact and involve and are part of this pretty significant matrix of everything that has to work in harmony enough things are off to where those dampers don't equate to any advantage because other things are not allowing them to be an advantage if we're just living in a theoretical world michael where everything else in the car is working wonderfully for the entire field and one team has found a damper build advantage you're talking tenths per lap one two maybe right not much maybe three you know i talking today not back in the day it's not going to be a ton but if you look at what separates first from sixth or twelfth in qualifying on a road and street course yeah it's usually not a lot of tenths so yeah that's why that one or two tenths advantage it could be hundreds, whatever it is. Like that's where you go. Wow, it really is meaningful. Um, where this can be demonstrative uh, most heavily, Michael, would be in a race. Where again, assuming that all cars are more or less equally good, and say one team or one entry has the magic damper setup, well. That's where you would get to see, in theory, a 20-lap, 30-lap, however many lap stint where you can say, cool, they're taking a couple tenths per lap off of second place and another lap, and there's a couple more tenths and another lap and a couple more tenths. It's not like name your favorite two or three or four fastest drivers in IndyCar. It's not like one is more capable of just outdriving the other, Right. Joseph Newgarden is not any faster than Scott Dixon and vice versa, right? I mean, just saying they're all at this crazy elite level where the differences in ultimate potential are infinitesimal. But you have a guy like one of those two or a Rossi or a rundown your favorite driver's names, and they have that advantage through setup whether it's dampers, whether it's whatever, and you make that to their talent, that's when you see the, and holy cow, (laughs) so-and-so is stomping the field. Didn't Rossi do that two, three years ago at Road America, right? Just, I mean, everyone go home. (laughs) There's no reason for you to be out there. Uh, For any of you outside the top three, 
just pull in and park and let your teams get started on the loading process because you're not it's just there's no other than the folks are going to be on the podium the rest of you it's over we don't get those days very often but they're magical when we see them michael so yeah it's not the one second uh half second thing that you know the refinements have are so great after so many years that it's like the Delar DW12 chassis, there's so little left to find in terms of performance gains that rarely do you get this breakout performance where everyone is just uh, playing for second place. Uh, all right, where are we going here? Kevin Frederico, you ask when uh, teams do private testing, how does it get paid for? Uh, all the teams, do they chip in to rent the track or the does the series do that? So for private tests... There's usually a main team that has booked it first. And from there, um, if they want other teams to be there, they will allow them to. And in general, they all divvy up the costs for the day equally. Um, This Tuesday, the Ganassi team will be at Laguna with all four of their cars. I'm thinking of going down again and uh i'm just i'm a little conflicted y'all because i think i mentioned this in the first show uh originally there were meant to be multiple teams there and i'm like cool well multiple teams multiple opportunities for doing something interesting if i go down um and then found that pretty much all bailed except for ganassi so since they were the only ones there last time and it was two of their cars i guess well two more will be there which would be great but I'm still debating. I think I want to go down just because, you know, race cars and I like them and I miss them. But, uh, yeah, uh, they'll be the only ones there. So they'll be the only ones paying for the track and that will not be inexpensive, but they apparently see value in it and they're going to be there. Uh, I think March 1st, there's four teams, maybe five, and they will split the same track rental four or five ways. So that's how it happens. Um, Uh, Rob Ball, you ask about eliminating eliminating all private testing, only having open tests. Uh, the series conducts for teams. Says I would think that having no testing would be good for cost? Question mark. What's your opinion on this? Well, it all depends. Um, if IndyCar would replace the missing private test days with open test days, meaning the numbers still end up the same in terms of on track opportunities for testing, obviously that's a bit of a wash. Uh, IndyCar has canceled all open tests for 21, except for the IMS test. So this is really the only opportunity for teams to go out in terms of private testing, Rob. So, um, you know, just looking at what's in front of us right now, we have a Jimmy Johnson, Romain Groschamp, and some others, uh, Cody Ware and some others who they're going to need and want all the track time they can get scott mclaughlin uh i would just say this yeah track testing isn't cheap but it's kind of like saying hey we're gonna limit practice for football or basketball games and again i i don't know if that gives us the product that we really want so i hear you but I'm not sure I would go down that path. And I don't know why I'm stumbling because this is not a hard thing to answer. 
Probably means I need to pick a couple more and say goodbye. Uh, Joachim Bernardson. Hey there. He says, what was Indi- uh, what year was, were Indy cars the fastest on road courses and ovals? Well, we'd probably have to point to somewhere around 2001. We know that on the oval side, uh, certain Gilles Deferrin did 241 point yada, yada, yada to set that record. Um, but I mean, if we're talking road and street courses, I would have to think 2015, 2016, the manufacturer aero kits with the highest level of downforce ever produced by Indy cars ever, ever, <laughs> ever, 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 maybe formula one as well. And you name it, uh, anything else I can think of that uses significant downforce and open wheel form. So yeah, um, I would say we don't have a single year where all these things uh, converged, Joachim, but uh, those are the two things that come to mind. Let's see. Keith Lee, MP, if you had to pick between the Newman Haas 2002 Toyota Lola or the Penske 2001 Honda Renske to use for the 2021 IndyCar season, which one would you pick? Uh, which one uh, could you see perform better at Indy? Uh, what kind of speeds would they hit? Oh, man, I have no idea on the latter part. You know, uh Again, if we could use them this year, would they be allowed to run as they were legal in 2001 and 2? Um, yeah, the Penske uh, 2001, oh my gosh, Renard, yeah, which I got to write about a couple issues ago in Racer Magazine. It'd be that one without a doubt. Uh, I mean on modern firestones um i don't even know what the thing would do at the speedway uh (laughs) yeah uh i would have to think that ari's lap record uh qualifying record would fall and fall by a pretty significant margin so yeah i mean i could throw up a random number but it wouldn't necessarily be accurate but um yeah boy <laughs> all that honda power the sound uh the looks i mean it looked amazing and who do we get to drive it i mean Gilles retired but elio he'd probably love to wheel that thing so yeah that would be my pick uh nick dovniak why don't we see indy cars with sparky skid plates doesn't everyone like sparky skid plates i do and pre-aero screen it was something that i really wondered about why don't we have titanium skid plates just for the show i mean they look great it it, it's something that everyone remembers fondly maybe not every single driver getting blasted in the visor with them but yeah so those little sparks are little pieces of metal flying backwards uh, and they're hot too overstating the obvious and they pit things pretty heavily so that's why with very expensive aero screen screens would say that's a pretty good reason why indycar probably won't introduce them because yeah uh probably not too good uh let's see robbie bergen you got a question about park johnstone send that one in again um mitch mortensen as Marshall, with all the talk about new chassis and team swapping manufacturers at the Rolex 24, I was curious about the life cycle of the Delarty W12. How many exist? I think it's 60 plus, something like that. Uh, what happens when they're crashed? Well, they're either repaired or totaled. 
Uh, and are they still building new ones? Uh, when asked, yes. We know that Takuma Sato, for example, will be driving a brand new Delar DW12 this year because his Indy 500 winner has gone back to the Honda Museum in Japan, and the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan team did indeed straight up order, I think, two new chassis, is uh, what team manager Rico Suave, Rico Nolt, told me. So, yes. Uh, let's see. Colin Hasty, how do you think Scott McLaughlin will fare on the ovals? I think he will fare quite well. He's just smart as a whip. Um, and I don't see him trying anything too crazy because I believe he's very, very well aware that he has an amazing opportunity with Penske. And one way to sour that is to be weaving from lane to lane at Texas Motor Speedway and dive bombing somebody on the, on the low side heading into turn three and those kinds of things. I, he's a smart, smart, fastidious, fastidious guy. Learns a lot, thinks a lot, seems someone who rarely does things unintentionally. And I think those are really, really amazing ingredients for a rookie like him with a big team like Penske. So I think he's going to be fine. I also think he's going to be pretty darn quick, too. He and Rick Mears get along very well. That can only help. Let's see. Where do we go to close here? One or two. Uh, Brett Ross, MP, does Firestone set a limit for how much camber IndyCar team can run at certain tracks? Uh, they offer suggestions, Brett, but uh, Firestone cannot tell a team what to do with its suspension settings. Uh, ta -ta, ta -ta. Justin Holmes, do teams stay in town after a victory to celebrate? If so, what's a good story you've heard of or been part of? All depends. Rolex 24 is a good example. Um, I think I mentioned Justin where there are some drivers like Oliver Askew, Alexander Rossi, and some others who won their classes and had to get in their cars and drive more or less straight down to Sebring to get in, get some sleep, and be ready to test Monday morning. Um, but when possible, yeah, uh, especially if it's a big one, you'll certainly have that. For what we've seen of late over the last year or so, it's been a lot of, well, man, we really want to, but can't exactly go to this restaurant here. That restaurant might be closed or just whatever it is. Um, and so they hold off and say, well, we're going to wait until a, a later point in time and do maybe a private celebration at the shop. Been hearing more about that lately. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's all kinds of stories of the, you know, going out and, getting uh, trashed and uh, <laughs> not being super responsible. Um, geez, in terms of ones I've been a part of, I have a lot of wins in my career. So, I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, there's some, but there aren't like, oh, you know, 20, 30 plus. It's more like 5 to 10 maybe. Um Probably more banquet stuff that comes to mind, Justin. Like, you know, hey, we were a significant player in whatever series and whatever year, and we finished second or third, and so we're all going to go to the banquet compared to, yeah, we finished 14th. There's no reason to go and uh, be reminded of our mediocrity 
and those stand out because you know the drinking's going to start a little bit early um and you're going to show up uh, you're going to show up well oiled and from there you know uh, throwing things, abusing friends at other tables. Uh, I remember one banquet that I went to in 1994, I think. might have been 93 or whatever. It was the SECA Pro Racing Sports 2000 Championship. And I think we won the title that year. And, yeah. Uh, oh, we were staying at the hotel where the banquet was being held and it's just somewhere locally here nearby Sears Point Sonoma Raceway and uh I recall uh my roommate was one of the mechanics uh Richie uh I had gotten a hold of a couple of my favorite beers at the time which I haven't had in a long time called Sammy Schlaus which is pretty much like drinking teriyaki flavored jet fuel um, I think I'd had two, even to the point of like, we were running late and I think I remember having the first sitting just on the, on my bed and then recalling we were running late cause maybe the alcohol helped us not remember time good a lot. And so they, oh, I need to get in the shower. So like, and one of those, one of the Sammy Schlauses is enough alcohol to knock you on your behind. I remember thinking, well, still not feeling fully lubricated here. Let me drink a second one while I'm in the shower. And that shower lasted a while because at some point in time, I think I just kind of slid down the wall. Uh, I think I finished most of it or all the beer, but yeah, it, it put me on my behind really, really good. And I think Richie was like knocking up, pounding on the door like, hey, what's going on? Got dressed. We staggered in. Um... I don't remember if it was him or another crew member had a red laser pointer and was just hitting everybody who walked up to the podium to say something. We sat at the back. I don't know if that's where our table was, but we sat at the back and we were being shushed and told to shut up and grow up and act professional and all that by seemingly everybody in the room. And we just didn't want to hear it. And so we mouthed off cackling and laughing about lord knows what and we were having our own celebration uh in the middle of this larger celebration and i don't know if everyone enjoyed that banquet this is i haven't thought about this in years justin this is just kind of coming back to me right now um we were a-holes we were totally in the wrong total jerks um didn't care because we felt emboldened because we were the championship winners and whatever, whatever. But, um, Oh yes. So, uh, yeah. Um, and I can think of one or two other times where that happened on other teams that I was on. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I should be saying any of this cause I'm not very proud. It makes me smile, but not smile like, Oh, that was cool. It's smile. Like, and you were, you were an even bigger idiot back then, Pruitt. Um, let's see. Where else do we go here before we say goodbye? Uh, Spaceship receptacle. I don't know if I've read a question from you before. Which drivers need to perform this season to still have a seat in 2022 if money wasn't a thing? And I think I'm going to take one more after that. 
Um, if money wasn't a thing, meaning just straight up, we're going to cut you if your performances aren't what we want. I don't know if I see any that really jump out as like, oh, you better perform or I'll mention this and it's more of a age and tenure thing. I don't know how many years Takuma has left. I don't want him to go away anytime soon. I know that at 44, this clock is certainly winding down, but he had a great year in 2020. There was, I'm trying to think, what was it? There was an event that he did okay. The Indy 500. Um, your Indy 500 winner, right? I mean, so it's not like he's coming off a poor year in terms of high achievement. But as we've spoken about ad nauseum on the show, he faded a lot. And there are a lot of times that we just didn't know he was there. I'm not saying the team is looking to get rid of him. Not saying that at all. I am saying, though, that it does feel like uh, maybe, maybe, maybe he is needing, you know, needs to have a really good year um, or a, a quality year because the last thing you really want to do is have a scenario where, hey, you're you're great at this one race, but we can't always count on you. Uh, when we have to deliver at other places. I think this is going to be an important year for Takuma in that regard. What can you show outside of the big race we expect you to perform? You know, in the last show, Simon Pagano's names come up. I'd say Simon's probably on the clock here uh, with the team being watched more intently. Um, again, we know that two years ago, boy, you had a great year in terms of high, high achievement. It's been a little while though, since it felt like he could be top dog at Penske, right? Finished eighth last year, had that one win, had a couple podiums, know all that. But, uh, I do believe the team is probably looking at and wondering, Hey, um, what are we going to get from you? Um, what are we going to see? Uh, what are we going to find? So anyways, um, those are probably the two that jump out the most. I don't know if there's any others where I'm like, oh boy, if you don't, you're done. Um, yeah, let's go with, uh, who are we going to close with? Uh, John Sable, you got a question about, uh, or a comment here about liveries and loving Scott McLaughlin's no doubt about that. And again, if I didn't get to your question, send them in if you want me to. Um, we're going to close with Dustin Marlowe. Whatever happened to Jimmy Bly? He says, I ask as a part of a research effort for a possible Prude documentary on the split and later reunification as it happened in the Driven universe. Well, I've uh, been able to dig up a little bit on that here, Dustin. Uh, he unfortunately was never able to win a championship, but I know that he gave Mark Plourd pretty serious run a couple years in champ car. So, you know, that happened other than that, uh, pretty strong rumors that he has a Subaru dealership that he owns somewhere in the Colorado Rockies. So trying to, uh, as my cat Rocky looks at me wondering if I just called his name, sorry, pal, go back to sleep. 
Uh, that's all I can tell you, Dustin. I do, though, have, I think, four or five Jimmy Bly hats. And so I don't know if I'm ever going to wear all them. So I might need to make one of those available to uh, whomever the director is for the Prude documentary. Because if you're doing something and it involves Jimmy Bly, you probably need a Jimmy Bly hat. All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Speak to you here really soon.